It is time again for another episode of Inner Experience, the podcast connected with Acid Horizon, which explores consciousness, the intrapsychic, and oddities, and we do it all by connecting it back to philosophy and other theory. In today's show, we're talking about the tarot and unique and novel tarot decks. Both Ted, our guest, and myself have envisioned new tarot designs. And our work is a way that we in part support ourselves. So if you want to check out anything that's mentioned in today's episode, it will be in the show notes below. Also, you can get a tarot reading from Ted. His information will be down there as well. Now let's begin. This is your inner experience. Today, we're doing a bit of a fun and mysterious episode here for Halloween 2021. With us on the show, we have Ted, whom I met on Twitter. I think we met during the pandemic, but I saw Ted conducting tarot readings online, and I shot him some money via PayPal just to hook a brother up and also get a tarot reading, which I thought was really exciting during that time. And I always wanted to do an episode of Inner Experience on the tarot. So I thought, well, why not bring one of our followers onto the show? And one of the great things about Ted's Twitter account was, well, at least during the pandemic, I think you were moving. Was that right, Ted? Yeah, moving to Seattle. He had a copious amount of science fiction books and video games from the 90s, you know, PC games and all the stuff that made me excited when I was a teenager and young adult. So welcome to the show, Ted. How are you? Hey, thanks. I appreciate being here. Uh, Looking forward to a good Halloween weekend. What is your experience with the tarot? How did you learn? What are the resources that you go to? Just give us a little autobiography of yourself in relation to the tarot. So, you know, I remember my first uh, exposure to the tarot, and this is a kind of embarrassing story. Uh, My sister had gotten a, a tarot of the cat people. Uh, when I was a teenager. And this is one of my great regrets that I, I kind of damaged my relationship with my sister because, you know, at the time I was very serious, sort of uh, poo-pooing it. Like, why wouldn't you get the original tarot, right? Uh, not knowing that there isn't exactly an original tarot out there to be found, right? And uh, then I got into uh, the writings of Robert Anton Wilson, who turned me on to Alistair Crowley. And I remember being really struck by Wilson's uh, claim that, you know, well, I just bought a tarot deck and declared myself a witch and started calling myself a psychic, right? And um, uh, that led eventually to this idea that I had, wouldn't it be cool to make a tarot deck based on the work of Philip K. Dick, uh, who had all of these wild Gnostic experiences and, you know, churned out 9,000 pages of notes on his wild mystical researches. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of interesting characters and, uh, sort of like theological structures in his books uh, and in his uh, his so-called exegesis. Uh, so that became a labor of love that I worked on with the artist uh, Christopher Wilkie, and we published uh, uh, three or four years ago uh, the, the PKD Tarot. And is that available for sale somewhere? Yeah, that's available via Wide Books, uh, which is an imprint that does a lot of kind of uh, PKD fan scholarship. Uh, run by David Hyde, who puts together uh, every couple of years a Philip K. Dick Fest. And we often meet in Fort Morgan, Colorado, at the author's uh, gravesite. Uh, so the uh, the tarot, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those um, print-to-order things, so it's a little pricey. It's like around 40 50 bucks. Some of the proceeds do benefit the Philip K. Dick Fest, where you can go party with a bunch of dickheads. Awesome. Well, you probably know this, that I've created my own major arcana of philosophical theorists. And I was curious if you observed any of my choices, whether you thought they were in alignment with the the tradition of the tarot. Uh, Like, for example, on the Fool card, I put Antonin Artaud. Oh, perfect. On the on the hermit card, I put Deleuze. I have the hanged man on on Foucault. I have, of course, Hegel as the devil, Uh, among many others. (laughs) Hegel goes to horny jail. (laughs) That's right. Adam, I'm sure you need to get look, in on that one. Look, 
Better to rule in spirit. You can quote me on that. Under the Roman Empire. (laughs) (laughs) What is your connection to theory, like Deleuze, French philosophy, and things like that, in in relation to the Tarot, Ted? So I had the great privilege of uh, studying Levinas with Nomi Seidman at the GTU in Berkeley, the the Graduate Theological Union, where I was um, studying Kabbalah and alchemy and, you know, teaching classes on alchemical illustrations and and magic and stuff like that. And uh, so I also took a class from a student of Kristeva. Uh, what was her name? Oh my goodness. Uh, Lisa Weber. We had a really fun theory class. And the other teacher in that class was a, uh, a Merleau-Ponty and Bourdieu person. Uh, so I remember we had a really fun guest uh, speaker who was a guy who was like putting himself through police training and uh, really interested in Merleau-Ponty and the phenomenology of the body and, and whatnot. Uh, and this was all kind of, you know, way over my head. But I remember writing something in uh, in one of my papers, you know, that like reading Levinas makes me feel as if I've been uh, surreptitiously dosed by uh, by LSD. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, yeah, I've, I, I'm a big fan of theory. And uh, once I went to teacher school and did a teaching credential, all that stuff, um, you know, that I kind of banged my head on. Uh, I also uh, worked with the great uh, uh, David Simpson, who wrote a book called Situatedness. So even in college, I was like, you know, joking around with people about theory, but uh, it's always been a real struggle. So I appreciate that you guys are are doing a show trying to bring it to life and and especially put it in audio format, because uh, I think a lot of people do better, you know, hearing people chat about it merrily rather than trying to struggle through these thick and dense readings. I was a philosophy major and I went to a school with a very strong phenomenological orientation. And one of the independent studies that I did with a teacher of Asian philosophy was on the I Ching. So my exposure to methods of divination began via continental philosophy, interesting enough, through Asian philosophy. The person who who took me through this was also strong in Heidegger and Nietzsche and, and, and those sorts of things. But before we get into doing readings. Let's talk about like, what's it like to, to become a reader of the tarot? Like, how was that path for you? I know you just picked up a deck, but like, how does one true, like really learn? Like, what are the reliable manuals? I know there's a lot involved with developing one's intuition about the cards. What does it take, I guess? So, you know, I kind of came up in the, uh, in the chaos magic tradition and, uh, you know, as a reader of Aleister Crowley, I was already working on a, on a heavily modified tarot deck, the Thoth, uh, or Thoth tarot deck that Aleister Crowley designed, which kind of dorks around with a lot of the attributions. Um, and then I remember a conversation that I had around college age with a fellow who said, you know, when I do my tarot readings, I pick what cards go into them, <laughs> right? Okay. You know, I don't, the, I don't let randomness decide because it's like I want to sort of take charge over my magical life, right? And uh, so I've always had a, a kind of a anything goes approach to it. However, I do believe that there's, you know, there's a lot there to kind of discover and, and work with. And so, you know, I mean, there's this rich symbolism, right? Uh, but the amazing thing about the symbolism and, uh, you know, there's another philosophy connection here that the the analytical philosopher, Michael Dummett, uh, did a lot of the uh, the groundwork on this that, you know, before it was an occult system, terror was a game. And a lot of the symbols, you know, so-called, right, that uh, that were printed on the cards had nothing to do with esotericism uh, that we can prove, right, that, that we can find, had nothing to do with ancient Egypt. It was sort of just like a, a, a game going back to, what, the 14th, uh, 15th century. And um, not long after the introduction of playing cards, right, tarot was, was one of those games. So if we're going to do kind of an archaeology of, of these tarot symbols, you know, we have to think about, well, how did they become esoteric in the first place, right? So um, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, uh, you know, if you're going to try and become a tarot reader, I mean, you can you can plug yourself into the, you know, the French late 18th century tradition of, of esotericism, you know, or you can you can go back further. And, uh, you know, I've done interviews on my show. Uh, I do tarot for the soulless materialist podcast, people who are, who are trying to dig into these these older versions of uh, of, of cardomancy that that kind of go back before the 19th century occult model sort of seized it. And even further back to when it was was just a game. Um, so what about learning it? You know, learning it is a real adventure. There's a whole lot there. 
um, you've got to do a lot of kind of memorization, right? There, there's a there's a kind of a gag and like a running gag in the the occult tradition where it's like somebody's learning uh, how to be initiated into the Golden Dawn or something. It's like learn those attributions, neophyte. You know, you got to go memorize the you know all that stuff. Uh, you can look at, for example, Aleister Crowley's book seven seven seven, which is uh, uh, full of those um, attributions. And uh, then, you know, after uh, Eliphas Levy and, and these French occultists got a hold of it, the uh, the tree of life of the Kabbalah becomes this structure on which um, the tarot gets uh, gets sort of um, woven. And I think that that's all lovely. I think it's all brilliant. And it dovetails with my interest in the, the medieval art of memory. It's a really interesting process to kind of learn how to think in attributions, to learn how to think in correspondences. I, I think of what William Burroughs said about, you know, thinking in association blocks to kind of um, combat the word virus, right? So tarot can be a great tool for for learning, you know, what you might call lateral thinking and, uh, and, and a kind of a combinatorial openness to, uh, to synchronicity, just, just like the I Ching. I quite like the idea of um, someone who's quite interested in the, just showing my, my, my hands here a bit, not to make a tarot pun, on in the, the chaos magic sort of telemite tradition myself. I mean, um, I do like the idea of the set of playing cards being essentially, you know, in the same sense as one would say, charging a sigil, becoming charged and into, into its own kind of tradition. Because, I mean... Uh, yeah, we have the the most famous one is the, the A.E. Waits tarot deck, illustrated by um, oh, Pamela Coleman Smith. And um, yeah, this this is the, the Golden Dawn. He's working in 1904. And even even with uh, Eliphas Levi's, the French cultist trying to bring this kind of new capitalistic sense into it, at least in the English-speaking world, you don't really get much of... This isn't really transmitted until you get someone like um, the head of the Golden Dawn, Samuel Little McGregor Mathers, in his book, The Kabbalah Unveiled. Then you have this internal split within the Golden Dawn. Then you get Crowley coming about this, this, this almost mythological invention of the, of the Foth Tarot. But um, it's the investment in the tradition of symbolism that seems to give it this intuitive power, especially when one gives it according to these, you know, these various maps of human subjectivity or of the world soul or something like that, which you get not only in sort of hermetic traditions that filter into German philosophy, actually, people like Schelling, but also this, um, this amazing Kabbalistic tradition that even filters her into chaos magic and even into like, you know, comics and stuff like that. People like Grant Morrison, Alan Moore, et cetera. And um, if one could provide a psychological source for the tower cards as an intuitive mechanism, I do wonder if you could think about it in terms of, Essentially, in a similar way to like a, a sigil, where one would imprint a, essentially const, construct an intentional symbolic system in view of meaning, and I'm wondering if that's a, of a, an interest, if chaos magic can provide a, a kind of meta analysis for the tarot and its its origins. I mean, like a, a kind of, I guess maybe that reality tunnel is the best way of putting it. My Wilson's a bit rusty. So there's a great article that I recommend people read who are uh, are working on this 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 line of investigation. It's by a Janet Zweig. Uh, it's something like uh, procedural systems, mystical art, and the computer, something like that. And uh, she gets into like the the combinatorial wheels of uh, Ramon Lull, uh, the the Spanish or Catalan mystic of the 13th century, uh, that kind of gets cross referenced in in Renaissance magic with uh, Abraham Abalafia's approach to the Kabbalah. In the Kabbalah, we have uh, the well, in the prehistory of the Kabbalah, we have the Sefer Yetzirah which is this amazing combinatorial system where God made the universe out of combining the, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And uh, this is the Jewish version of uh, uh, letrism, which is also happening in the Islamic world in the medieval period, where there's this flourishing of science that is all tied in um, with the occult sciences. In the medieval period, the, uh, the Dominicans were really interested in the art of memory because it was sort of a method for remembering prayers. And then Giordano Bruno gets a hold of this and, and turns it into a, a magical system. Um, mm. So this whole... Um, interesting prehistory of uh, of of combinatorial uh, approaches to esotericism, I, I might say uh, that that is is a, a rich tradition and uh, not necessarily discussed as much as it should be uh, when we're talking about um, these maps, right? Mm. Uh, the, w- the way that symbolism can be a, a map of. Uh, of the collective unconscious or, or whatever. But, um, you know, for me, I, I, I'm also sort of interested in deconstructing that because 
It's like whenever somebody comes to an idea of what the empress means in the tarot, you know, are they necessarily plugging into a tradition or are they creating something? So I'm really interested in how when people come to approach the tarot or any esoteric system, right, the reception of any esoteric tradition uh, where you don't necessarily have access to the mystical experiences that went into encoding the symbol, uh, now that you're decoding the symbol and having whatever mystical experiences along the way, I think that it's better understood as, as really an act of creation than an act of reception. Of the three of us, I'm the, the neophyte. Like for me, tarot is the thing that's like you know, I've seen readings done, but that's about it. You know, I've known people who've been invested in this. And I'm fascinated by the history of the process of tarot. Uh, you're, you're talking about, at least for a certain period of time, this practice being primarily gamified, but then also the mnemonic principles that might be underwriting some of the more conventionally scholastic slash mystical elements in the history of, of philosophy, thought, mathematics, and, you know, spatial temporal understandings of like cognition. And I'm wondering, especially when you talk about the differences between creativity in tarot and like the historical force of the given symbol, when we talk about the fundamental arts of the art of memory and so on, is there a tension between this need for for a certain kind of force of tradition, does this end up being translated in like conventional contemporary tarot readings? Is there to you a real vast array of different kinds of readings of tarot specifically that either take into account the historical force that underwrites it or on the other end, try to engage in this more creative side? And what are the two kinds of experiences and benefits that can come from these two kinds of reading. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of Finnegan's Wake right now. Here comes everybody. Uh, the, the contemporary scene is just such a um, menagerie, right? There's just, there's been this flowering of creativity. Uh, I feel like lately, um, especially, you know, where everybody kind of feels empowered to like make their own deck and uh, make their own interpretation, but you know where, where I'm, I'm going to privilege the, uh, the the multiplicity, right? I'm, I'm going to privilege the the difference here as as part of my training, I guess. At the same time, it's amazing to see the consistencies right across the board. It's amazing to see how things are just kind of like bubbling up from the psyche, but but we we end up recognizing patterns, right? So, you know, it's amazing how your, uh, your, your tarot of the philosophers, right? I watched, I look, I look at that and I didn't really answer your question before. And I think spot on, you know, I mean, I just love our toad as, as the fool, right? I'm thinking of a line from, uh, uh, Robert Anton Wilson. Did you know that in the uh, Illuminatus trilogy or somewhere they refer to our toad as that poor fool? Oh, really? Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I mean, I make a habit. It's it's probably more of a compulsion of, of of spotting those little synchronicities, right? Where, you know, you might have not read that, my poor fool Artoad line, right? And uh, am I mixing that up with Cordelia from King Lear? Anyway. Well, here's a question. Of course, a certain kind of skepticism could be said to be the enemy of the tarot. Just your garden variety skeptic saying like, look, it's just it's just projection. You know, what is it that's really happening here? You know, you look at somebody like Carl Jung, for example, who examines the event of divination, particularly with the Jing, but also, you know, he has an adjacent explanation of what happens in the tarot. The hexagrams of the Jing and the individual tarot cards representing these aspects aspects of life, the world, you know, the collective world soul, if you will. And when we see these images, they are almost entry points into this situation via an aspect. And one of the possible functions of the image is to create this eruption of meaning or a rupture of a question or a quandary to the point that you're able to get this new sort of perspective on an event. I mean, th there could be a very sort of easy go-to materialist explanation of what's happening at the phenomenological level, but in consideration of the way that Carl Jung's looking at it versus the skeptic. Where, where do you stand? What do you think is happening in the event of divination? So the, the story that I tell about the uh, the genesis of my podcast, you know, Tarot for the Soulless Materialist, which may give you a, a hint about my uh, my orientation here. I was talking to my aunt who is an atheist and, you know, I told her about how I, I made a few bucks, uh, you know, reading tarot online and, and she was shocked. She was horrified. You know, do these people think <laughs> you can really tell the future? Right. And, um, 
And it's like, maybe, you know, I mean, all the more power to them if they do. Uh, for the most part, and I mean, it's not that I'm closed off from these kind of woo-woo interpretations of it, but uh, I don't really find that necessary. Um, I mean, I think it's great if you're if you're into it, and I'm, I'm sure there's moments, you know, where I'm doing a, a kind of method of paranoiac criticism and kind of opening myself up to the, the wild in that way. But uh, for the most part, I think that there's just a whole lot of perfectly sensible, hard-headed, rationalistic, materialist explanations about how this stuff works and, and why it's cool. Uh, on the other hand, you know, um, to invoke a $10 word uh, in the esoteric tradition that's been picked up by continental philosophers, uh, there's this term correspondences, right? Uh, I, I was trained on uh, Emanuel Swedenborg, who was this 18th century Swedish uh, visionary Maybe maybe had some kind of brain epilepsy stuff going on. Who, who in his 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 middle age had all these visions, thought that he was talking to angels, you know. And he came up with this whole theory of the correspondences between the uh, you know the spiritual world and uh, the material world. And he said, you know, kind of like everything in the material world has its um its correspondence in the spiritual world, right? There's this great line by the alchemist Kroll from a century or two earlier: uh, "Every herb is a terrene star." Right. So like every herb on, on the, the, the planet Earth corresponds to some, you know, star in the heavens. And, um, you know, this idea of, of correspondences is, is, is just a, a fundamental kind of big idea in, in, uh, in Western culture. Right. And uh, we, we can't really avoid correspondences. I, I believe it's the philosopher Giorgio Agamben who's interested in correspondences. Uh, uh, nowadays, kind of a controversial guy since uh, since the pandemic, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, <laughs> Eric Davis is always kind of urging me to go, you know, read that guy's stuff on correspondences. So that's one place I, I recommend people who are interested in the, the philosophy of tarot go uh, go look. I wasn't expecting to bring up a gambit on the tarot episode. <laughs> I, I was waiting. <laughs> Hard to avoid. I need to go read that part of a gambit on there because I've got so much a gambit sitting on my shelf. <laughs> but I mean, one of the things I quite like as well, I think what's, that's kind of underrated in thinking about the tarot in terms of it becomes a kind of obvious why it would produce such an intuitive or an eruption of meaning. When one thinks about a deck of cards, especially in a more sort of just everyday or even like working class context, a pack of cards is essentially an incredibly immense and expansive art gallery. So a pack of tarot cards is an expansive art gallery, which you can take anywhere, um, is still pretty well crafted, and is essentially, essentially you could take an entire museum of art with you, an entire, a huge amount of cards here. If anything, one says, one has to ask, you know, well, why wouldn't such an eruption of intuition and spontaneous creativity arrive from such a thing? Yeah, and not just that, right? But you end up smuggling that art gallery into your head as you work on this process of memorizing it, right? And, um, you know, it's interesting how you kind of go on this nonlinear adventure through the deck. You know, it's not like you start with the first card and master that, then move on to the second and master that. But it depends on what comes up in your readings. And then, you know, let's let's say I pull the Prince of Swords, right? And that makes me think about uh, the way that I'm kind of having this relationship with the women in my life as kind of maybe, you know, snotty intellectual or something like that, right? And um, the Prince of Swords begins to develop these these webs of connections with the reality situation, right? With the the life world uh, that I'm moving through. And it, it becomes a way of exploring the ways that I uh, you kind of relate to the world, relate to the people in my life. And, and this is really the only way that you can discover the meaning. I mean, especially the court cards, uh, the, you know, the prince, the queen, the, the page, uh, the, those cards, right, that, that often supposedly represent people or uh, personality structures, that kind of thing. So what you were saying about the art gallery, and it's amazing how now we have thousands of, of these art galleries where everybody's doing their own take on it. Uh, somebody said, I, I probably read this also in Robert Anton Wilson, that you know, if you were locked up in jail and you had the tarot deck memorized, if you had those um, correspondences memorized, right, you could sort of like recreate the entire esoteric knowledge of mankind, right? That these are all just these uh, these keys. I think, and and you know, from a semiotical perspective, it's interesting that we call them signals in, in the occult, right? These are the signals in the Book of Thoth. They're these. These seventy-eight signals that are kind of like you know you can tune your TV channel of, of the of the psychic brain to like all these seventy-eight different frequencies or you know maybe it's like seventy-eight different kind of like angelic levels or, or something like that and uh, definitely putting them onto the tree of life 
reinforces that where there's like the 10 spheres of the tree of life, the 32 mm. paths, right? It, it becomes this whole uh, map where there's all of these, these kind of locations that you can, you can sort of tune into, or it becomes, um, as Israel Regardi put it, he was a golden dawn guy in the mid 20th century yeah. and a psychologist, a Reikian psychologist, if there's any delusions. Um, Regardi was a Reikian. Oh, okay. I need to read more Regardi then. Oh, sorry. That was just, that was amazing. I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, so Regardi said, you know, it's like a filing cabinet. The Kabbalah is like a filing cabinet where as you have these mystical experiences, as you do these practices, you do these meditations, you know, gradually like the sphere of Hesed or the sphere of din comes to take on these meanings and you just gradually file your spiritual experiences away into these these kind of different symbols do you know if anyone ever tried to establish a sort of a uh, so rather than simply on the the, the sephirot of the tree of life do you think was there ever any attempt because i know crowley only developed his own tarot deck but also was um him and the mathers were key in well at least in the most popular edition we have inducing letter key of solomon it's the wider occult community. The, the system of um, demonic sigils and demons, princes of hell in various different courts and dukes. And the and Crowley in the intro famously says how each one of these is ultimately just a portion of the human brain. Um, so working on a kind of psychological or psychosomatic model, would, do you know of any attempts to um, align the Lesky of Solomon with the Tarot as, a kind of a, as an alternative basis to the Sephiroth or even as an extension of that tradition? As a matter of fact, I do. There is a guy uh, named Lon Milo Duquette, uh, who's one of the more oh, famous uh, <laughs> Bellamites, right? He wrote a book called The the Chicken Kabbalah of Rabbi So-and-So and, and uh, you know, fancies himself a real uh, stand-up comedian. And then he got himself entangled in this whole The Secret thing, right? Which uh, I'm not necessarily oh. the world's biggest fan of, but I, I like Lon's work. And uh, he's hilarious. He designed a tarot of ceremonial magic that each one of those cards has one of the um, goetic uh, sigils uh, embedded in it, right? I think there's 72 of those that correspond mm. to the 72-letter name of God, the Shemham Faresh, right? Uh, so you can get a tarot deck that has all of those um, goetic sigils uh, printed on it. Uh, so that's a lot of fun. Um, I've, I haven't worked too much with that. Uh, I, d I didn't find the art to be sparking joy in the way that one would, would hope. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, and there's a few decks like that that do really interesting things with the correspondences. Um, for example, uh, Sandra Tabitha Cicero, another um, Golden Dawn person who uh, knew Israel Rigardi, uh, she designed a tarot deck ceremonial magic that is faithful to the Golden Dawn color schemes. Uh, so not only is it, uh, you know, exquisitely reproducing all of these correspondences, uh, but <laughs> I should have a reading of Marie Kondo then. Uh, but also, um, the, the Golden Dawn had four different color schemes for the four scales of the tarot, the wands, the cups, mm. the swords, the discs. They each have their own uh, color scheme. Um, you can map it onto the Tree of Life. And she, uh, you know, very painstakingly, um, you know, painted all that and, and her tarot cards. But once again, I just, I wish that I liked the art better. Well, Ted, maybe at this time, we're at the half hour mark. If you don't mind, could you be our psychopomp today and do a few short three-card readings? Sure. Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's let's keep our concerns in mind as I shuffle. Okay, great. And and maybe one of the things that we can do, of course, we can't go through every card in the deck, but as cards come up, you can say things about the cards and you know, like what are some of the meanings or associations connected with the draw? Sure. All right. Well, why don't I start with a, a reading for the podcast itself? Oh, so our uh, significator card here is um, is that the uh, the princess of discs? Uh, so the princess of discs represents uh, the earthy part of Earth. Uh, so in terms of the the sixteen court cards, right? This is uh, one of sixteen. Right. It's uh, you might see it, see it as one of four too. right. The earthy part of Earth, which would be the very bottom. Um, so in terms of our, our question about like uh, materialism, uh, right, this this represents somebody who is, uh, you know, very, very kind of a down to earth uh, person. And uh, let's see what what have we got printed on here? We were talking about the I Ching. And sure enough, there's uh, you might not be able to see it, but there is a. Uh, uh, a, a yin yang symbol 
because uh, Aleister Crowley believed that the I Ching was a uh, you know an ancient Chinese system of divination that that you know corresponded exactly to uh, uh, to the tarot. And uh, if you check out my Philip K. Dick tarot, by the way, uh, we do have a, a whole set of I Ching correspondences that we uh, we wove in there, which is a kind of a difficult. Uh, uh, mashup because there's 64 hexagrams of the I Ching versus 78 cards in the tarot, right? So there's these kind of, it's a sort of syncopated geometry there. Uh, so the significator card, you know, the first card that comes up, you know, tends to represent the situation. Uh, in a three card reading, I'll tend to give it a, a few different uh, slots uh, that I would give to a, a larger reading uh, where it can indicate the situation. It can indicate the problem or, uh, you know, whatever is is complicating the situation. Right. And, you know, we're really concerned about. Right. What was that that I said? Uh, Hegel goes to horny jail. Right. We have. Uh, we have the, uh, the the way that the branches and, and the the princess of of dis are sort of uh, it almost looks like like prison bars, right? And uh, how is it that uh, you know when uh, when Marx flipped Hegel's uh, materialism on its head, right? Like how are we uh, how are we relating to this this prison uh, that we live in? Um, so speaking of that sort of a prison, in the past, we find the science card, the Six of Swords. Uh, now, the suit of swords uh, represents uh, not only the mind, uh, but specifically the power to um, destroy thoughts. Uh, this is something that uh, I think is, is a, a lesser appreciated aspect. And we see in this science card a representation of that, uh, the way that in the Sefer Yetzera, we, we not only use the combinatorial algebra of, of mashing together all the, the Hebrew letters, right? But we end up describing a three-dimensional uh, space, right? Where each of the, the letters has its own kind of like location in space. And we're, we're kind of creating a map or, you know, in terms of the art of memory, right? I think about how, you know, as we create these, these correspondences, we're creating these, these spaces in our head, right? Um, so, you know, in the past, we had this, uh, we had this thing called the scientific revolution, right? This thing that we, uh, the so-called uh, scientific revolution. And, and we are, we're sort of haunted by uh, all of the, uh, the structures of, um, you know, call it scientism, uh, right? And uh, how did we end up with um, materialism as, as we know it, I guess, would be the, the question that I'm asking. And so where is this all headed? We end up with another princess card, the princess of cups. Uh, now the this the sphere of cups. This is the uh, once again it's the princess, so it's the earthy part of uh, of the the water, and so the princess of cups is uh, you know a down to earth intuitive, right? Where we are kind of correlating these intuitions. Uh, that we're having, but still trying to bring them um, down to earth. How do we ground these intuitions? How do we ground these relationships uh, with the symbolism that might open us up to, to more mystical spaces? You know, how do we relate that to the life world? So let me see, can I hold these three up and make it uh, intelligible? Yeah. So the first card, once again, is the the, the princess of discs. Yeah. The second card is the six of swords and the third card is the Princess of Cups. Yep. So when I'm doing a reading, you know, I'm not just looking at the symbols sort of on their own, but I'm thinking about uh, the relationships, uh, you know, between the symbols. I'm kind of thinking about how I like brought up my teachers, Lisa Webster and Nomi Seidman, right? Like maybe uh, maybe I'm haunted by those those teachers who who turned me on to, to Levinas and Kristeva, right? So which one is... Uh, you know, which one is the Levinasian and which one is the, the Christevist? Uh, is that how you put it? I'm not sure how you uh, how you <laughs> plot these people into philosophical schools exactly. Right. So, you know, we might think about the uh, this this turtle that the uh, Princess of Cups is holding in terms of uh, this uh, this concept of abjection and, and Christeva. I don't know. Um, but I also, you know, I think about how there's the, anytime you're looking at a reading, you look at the uh, the preponderance of one sort of card or another. And you think about the relationships between the cards, um, uh, the cups and the swords um, might not necessarily get along, but the uh, cups and the uh, the discs. Oh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm mixing that up. Cups and, and wands are at odds, right? Uh, but uh, so swords and discs are going to be at odds. We, we talk about the uh, the dignity of the cards, right? So 
Um, the swords card being an air card is is ill dignified by its proximity uh, to the earth card. So we might think about uh, the relationships of the cards in that way. I'm also thinking that we got a lot of blues, um, and then we got the uh, the the earthy colors in the middle, right? But um, both our water card and our air card are are using a lot of blues, which is not you know another way of a, approaching or sort of trying to discover these eruptions of meaning that that bubble up. So what is the upshot? For example, the what is to be done in relation to this draw or 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 as the podcast? How are we to think about this or how, how could we utilize that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the materialist, um, however he might protest um, or she might protest, you know, to be a cold rationalist is always referring back uh, to these intuitions. Right. Is always. Uh, and then, you know, once again, these intuitions are always being grounded uh, in some material reality right so um you know i think that the uh, the takeaway here is uh that that in the future um intuitions might be playing a uh, a surprising role as we uh we take care of our turtle and and it is indeed turtles all the way down we can so easily get caught in our concepts caught in our heads and not tend to the the root of instinct or intensity if you will shall we do just a, a couple more or a few more sure who wants uh, who wants the first reading I do what I want should be the whole of the law, but I'll volunteer otherwise. <laughs> All right. So, uh, well, why don't we uh, why don't we start with acid host then? Oh, okay, that's me. Here is one of my personal favorite cards. Uh, this is one that I have just spent hours and hours gazing at, and uh, and just kind of I feel like I can just go deeper and deeper into this card as uh, these these weird fishy angelic creatures manifest. Uh, somehow, Lady Frida Harris, who painted the tarot, represented dolphins as these these weird kind of scaly fish. I, I don't know how these are are dolphins, but uh, supposedly these are dolphins entwined. And there's this uh, wonderful fountain flowing. It's the it's the Two of Cups, uh, love. And uh, you know the first um, first correspondence I'm thinking of is that a, a podcast such as this is quite a labor of love. And you know we do appreciate all of those. Uh, the, the great work uh, that goes into it, um, often a, a thankless task. Uh, so what's in the, and, and, and so the two of cups love, you know, it, it represents kind of much of what you would think, right? Like uh, we might say material love, right? We might say sex. In the past, we have, oh my goodness, something that often goes along with love, uh, the nine of swords cruelty. And so we have, uh, we have, again, didn't we just have it in the, in the first reading? We had uh, swords and cups, right? We have uh, intuitions in the mind intertwined. And there's a specific meaning of the, the nine of swords. Uh, Alistair Crowley calls it cruelty. Uh, but um, I didn't realize this until years and years into, into my path that uh, it has a specific meaning of like sort of harsh truths, like truths that you don't uh, necessarily want to hear. Oh, this is your Kafka's metamorphosis card, right? And uh, isn't there kind of a meme lately, you know, where you got the bug uh, on its back with the legs in the air is kind of like a, That's right. a sexual joke, right? So uh, once again, um, and then we got the swords as the bars of uh, Hegel's horny jail. <laughs> Poor Eagle. And this leads to um, the future being uh, the chariot. Now, the chariot is the first of the uh, major arcana that have popped up in our reading. Now, the major arcana are the the twenty two so called trumps of the tarot are the uh, the the kind of um, big symbols. Ah, this is uh, your your Plato card. <laughs> Very cool. And yeah, so the chariot can represent um, desire. I also think of in in like Neoplatonism and the philosopher I am. Or, or Proclus, this idea of like the uh, the vehicle of the soul. And uh, here's a fun correspondences thing, right? There's this line in the Hermetica, you know, that as you do the ascent, you're passing through these bands of demons, right? And what happened when your soul was incarnated on earth, according to this Neoplatonist scheme, is that you passed through all of the planetary spheres. And as your soul passed through these planetary spheres, depending on the configuration of the spheres at the time of your nativity, uh, you're going to be taking on these different characteristics. Your soul is going to be taking on, you know, martial characteristics if, if Mars is in the way or lunar characteristics if, if the moon is in the way. Way, right. And so um, 
they they talk about this this uh, I think it's okema in Greek the uh, the vehicle of the soul. So uh, I always think of that is one of the the sort of like neglected aspects of of the symbolism of the chariot. I mean, it can mean, you know, literally uh, moving around, right? So, you know, I wonder if there is a road trip in your future. Well, well, many people know I'm um, moving from Los Angeles to the East Coast, and I will be driving there with all of my pets in our Subaru. Whoa. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, the cards never lie, do they? <laughs> well, what's interesting to me is, so the first card was the, the the lovers, right? Which could refer to a labor of love. And 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 to be honest, I'm I'm in a position right now where I'm I'm moving into working on the podcast and the sort of surrounding enterprises in a full time capacity. And I've left my job, uh, you know, a fairly decent paying job with a future and a pension and that sort of thing, in order to do this. And it's taken a, a little bit of bravery to do that. You know, I mean, I, I needed to be in the material position to be able to do it for one thing, but also emotionally and, and intellectually ready. There are times in my life where this could not have happened based on the situation that I was in. But but now is certainly the time. You know, maybe the uh, maybe the real vehicle is is the podcast itself could be it's it's something that you're using to do a lot of kind of traveling in these um these virtual spaces right but it's also a social space uh where you're you're kind of traveling around in the world making these connections making what we what we might call business connections as well as you know personal philosophical scholarly connections and you know nowadays i mean it's it's kind of a meme that the podcast is like this thing that that people do right you know and uh you know the thing that i've noticed about having a podcast um is that it gives me a chance to have the kind of conversations that I want to have, you know, whereas like, you know, going to a book club or, you know, going to these, you know, going to parties or whatever, it didn't, didn't always end up being a forum for the kind of conversations I want to have. You know, people don't want to hear all about my, uh, you know, nuclear physics lab in my basement. Uh, but, uh, but you can, you can just find the, the others as Timothy Leary put it, when you've got your podcast and you, you get a captive audience, you end up having, uh, awesome conversations and making friends that way. So uh, the podcast is the chariot. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm calling it. And ironically, it's Plato. Uh, or maybe not so ironically. Uh, cool. Well, hey, I, I feel satisfied. Who's next? Do, do I get to pick? Is it one of those games? I, that yeah, it's like Adam go next. It's like popcorn Wait, when okay. I'm teaching my middle school students. All right, Adam, you're up. All right, all right. So we have got ooh another gnarly card uh, similar to the uh, nine of cups. This is uh, the ten of swords, or I'm sorry, the nine of swords. This is the ten of swords ruin, right? So uh, you know this is uh, you know this is more Derrida, I guess, right? This is your your deconstruction card uh, where you're breaking everything down and. Um, you know, the numbers one to 10 to get into kind of the nuts and bolts or the mechanics of how the tarot works or how an interpretation proceeds, right? The numbers one to 10 can represent a kind of system of progress or, or development, right? Or, or maybe like leveling up, you know? Mm. So once you get to level 10, uh, once you become a level 10 deconstructionist, for example, you have to deconstruct the level 10 monsters, right? So you're no longer fighting goblins, but you're, you're fighting dragons or whatever it is. You know, you're no longer dealing with, uh, you know, rips in the fabric of reality but you're 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 dealing with a, a reality breakdown in its entirety <laughs> he's going to complete the system of <laughs> german idealism right that is um, my work oh god <laughs> so we're tearing down the the bars of horny jail here trying to break the chains uh, so interesting that we have now the in the past we have the six of wands um victory uh so the seven of wands, victor, uh, valor, would be the next card in that progression. And, you know, I'm kind of thinking in terms of how the, the seven of wands represents a sort of like weariness, a, a kind of, um, you know, once your energy is like extended fully and you're kind of like running out of steam. Uh, so this is what happens right before that, right? Where we, we've got in the past some kind of victory, right? You've, you've figured something out. Right. You've you've figured out how to wield uh, your sword. You've figured out how to kind of like hold up the the wand of motivation and, and you know, struggle through these these texts. Right. To find the, the kind of fire that you need um, to do this, this philosophizing. Uh, so where's that going to end up? And that is the ace of discs, which is the root of the powers of Earth. 
Okay, so these are the kind of like fundamental intuitions that ground materialism. Okay, mm-hmm. um, the uh, the fundamental uh, intuitions that, that ground our uh, our relationship to the world. A, a story that I love to tell is that uh, you know when Timothy Leary picked up the Alistair Crowley Foth tarot deck for the first time, you know he said, "I'm going to just draw a random card out of this deck," and he pulled this card, the Ace of Discs. Uh, which was a card that Alistair Crowley himself, if you see, we've got two Metatherion uh, printed in the in the uh, the hexagram, which kind of represents the the uh, the ceremonial magic temple as the universe, which is a representation of our phenomenal reality orientation. Um, so Alistair Crowley identified himself with the uh, the the ace of discs and and timothy leary took this to be an indication that he was the reincarnation of alistair crowley uh this is something that people might not know about the uh the use of the term ecstasy to to represent psychedelic experience Mm -hmm. right and um you know we can get into a whole reikian trip about that too uh so um Anyway, that might be a little bit of a, a tangent. And, uh, you know, another kind of fun thing about this card is that we have these sort of angelic wings, right? How, how does this, uh, this angelic reality undergird the, uh, mm. the material? So, yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely a, an indicator that you're going to go uh, complete the system of German idealism. I'll, I'll go well, yes. My, my first chapter of my thesis is on sort of re- reincarnating Max Stirner in light of contemporary Hegelian theory. It's about Hegel destroying the entire universe <laughs> in terms of law. And um, I obviously had to at least do something right to get there in the first place. So uh, I'm, 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 fe- I'm feeling good. I mean, uh, I start off from a kind of deconstructionist reading of Hegel as well. So uh, that, that was the Catherine Malibu card. <laughs> so, so there's a uh, there's a phrase in Kabbalah that I'll I'll give you as your your homework or your, your esoteric next step, which is uh, cutting the shoots. Uh, cutting the shoots. Go go look up that term and and its uses in the Kabbalah. See if that might uh, correspond to, to my mathas. Philosophical right. problems you're struggling with. Okay, one last reading. All the bad cards are still in the deck for Will. So I'm <laughs> oh Craig man, I hope too well. I hope there's point. a bomb. I hope there's a bomb on the way. Right. Um, so we're going to begin with ooh another very happy card. Uh, this is the nine of discs gain, and and remember we had the uh, we had the nine of, of swords cruelty earlier, which represents kind of harsh truths that you don't want to face. But here. Uh, we have a very straightforward, um, you know, situation of material gain, right? So you may be in a, a circumstance where, um, I don't know if you've gotten a new job or if you've, uh, you know, kind of landed a cool scholarship or, you know, academic gig or, you know, something like that, or, you know, maybe you've got a cool new girlfriend or boyfriend, any kind of material circumstance uh, where you are feeling like your access to resources of some kind has increased, so to understand, oh, Acid Horizon, don't forget us. There you go. We're plugging into, uh, you know, the the chariot. We're we're getting the keys to uh, the Subaru here. So in the past, we have um, Prince of Cups, which represents uh, the fiery part of water, right? Um, so some kind of discovery of um, motivation as it relates to intuitions. You know, how are we uh, kind of like pushing these ideas around and. Uh, What's the vehicle that this guy is riding with some kind of a weird, uh, weird bird, right? So uh, we can see that he's, he's taken the reins of, uh, of this bird. I'm thinking about, you know, what does it mean to take the, the reins of the, the vehicle of a, of a podcast? So what's the outcome going to be? Uh, the three of discs works. Uh, we've been talking about work, right? Uh, one of the concepts that I love interrogating in my uh, tarot podcast is the great work, so-called, right? Which is, a, you know, really a, a 19th century occultist uh, dismembering or misreading of the alchemical concept of the opus magnum, right? The uh, the great work of the alchemist being, um, well, maybe it's turning lead into gold or maybe it's creating this universal medicine that's going to lead to eternal life. Um, so, you know, in the future, you're going to just start getting some work done, right? You're going to be especially like laying the foundation um, for the building of some great philosophical edifice or, or pyramid. He could never admit that to himself, but he's definitely got it in him. Yeah. Like <laughs> I, I can, I can ride with this. Yeah. Like 
my life has changed so much since meeting these these folks here and uh that's come with like a material gain but also the the expanse of my human and experiential like network has just broadened i i like the uh the prince of cups too this this sort of forcing for a a reorientation of the thrust of my work you know i'm I'm in the midst of that transition in my in my own graduate work. So, yeah, this is I can I can roll with this fine. I, I you know, I'm being forced <laughs> to to finally articulate clearly uh precisely why I'm doing what I'm doing. So, yeah. <laughs> yep. See, interrogators should just show up with a deck of tarot cards, you know, rather than state mandated tarot readings. <laughs> that sounds like a Philip K Dick thing for sure. They should they should do that uh <laughs> In the in the next presidential election, one of the primary debates, they should just have each of the the candidates uh, describe their own tarot readings back to the reader. Finally, something Kristen Cinema would vote for. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ted, I just want to say thanks. You did a great service to us and to our audience. Yeah, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun, and um, I, I'm sure it, it has piqued my interest once again in reading about tarot. Actually, I was reading 78 Degrees of Wisdom earlier today, uh, just kind of paging through that, and um, who knows, maybe somebody out there has now heard their calling as a future tarot reader. And um, if, if you don't mind, I, I can probably take your information, put it in the show notes, and then share that on Twitter. So if people sometime over the holidays want to do a tarot reading, they can go to Ted. Absolutely. Oh, well, it's been a great pleasure and uh, an honor to be invited. And I've just had a ton of fun talking with you fine gentlemen. Thank you so much. This was, <laughs> this was awesome. Thank, Thank you. you.